You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Agnes. Hi, Bob. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Good. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Right Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Agnes Callard. That's how you pronounce your last name, right? Exactly. And you're at the University of Chicago. You're a philosopher. Yes. And you've written a book uh, not long ago, uh, came out, I think, maybe last year, called Aspiration, The Agency of Becoming. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk uh, about the ideas in that. Uh, there's another word that starts with A that figures into the book and that you've written about called acrasia, less well-known than aspiration, but not unrelated to it. I want to talk about that because that, as I understand it, is is kind of like doing something even though you think it's the wrong thing to do mm-hmm. in one sense or another, morally wrong, unwise, and you know that and you do it anyway, that's acrasia. Yeah. And I mean, thinking of this, I, I you know, I, I was kind of, uh, I was kind of thinking that in some ways my life is a dialectic between aspiration and acrasia. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not clear which is winning. Um, but before we talk about those two words, I want to talk about unruliness which is the name of an essay you wrote uh, because the way you first came to my attention was when um, was by virtue of your having at one point in your life uh, laid down in the middle of a road at night on the, on the like yellow line in the middle. Yeah. Um, which struck me as, yeah, unruly would be a fair, fair way to put it. You, it's in your essay on unruliness that you describe that behavior. Yeah. But I was very struck by that, and I thought I should get who, this person who allegedly did this to explain to me why she did it. So why don't we start out with unruliness? It's not, it's not actually unrelated to the other two things we're going to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, why, uh, were, so this was what, 20 years ago or something? Yeah, just about. Yeah, I was a grad student at Berkeley, uh, studying classics at the time. Uh-huh. And I guess I would describe um, unruliness more generally as when you see that there's like a certain structure of how people tend to respond or act in a situation, you see that structure. And then you see like another possibility of just a thing that people don't do. Another example I gave in that essay is like eating flowers. I used to just be really tempted to eat flowers. I'm like, they're so pretty. I just want to eat them. And that. um, Did you ever do it? Yes. (laughs) Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> they don't taste good, no. but I would sort of keep trying. Um, it was like, but that's not what you do. Like you don't eat flowers, right? One does not eat flowers. Exactly. Um, and so like there was this line in the road and it's like, here's what you don't do. Lie down on that line. And then once I get that thought, I'm like, but what would it be like if you did it? Like we just have this rule that we all made up. We all follow this rule. Don't do it. Right. Mm-hmm. And sort of the more you think about it, um, the more it, feels to you like you need that knowledge of what it would be like because the um, that um, excluded possibility becomes so sort of tempting. Um, and for years before I lay down, I always loved to walk along the yellow lines, which is already. Um, that, that's rule breaking as I understand it. <laughs> um, since high school, I often would come home from debate tournaments late at night and the roads would be empty. And in that situation, I'd always walk along the yellow lines. And it's like there, it's like, I would feel like, like a car almost, you know, like you're not supposed to be in that space. Like I'm being a car, I'm playing a car. Um, so I had already done that for years, but what I had never done was lie down. 
uh, be a stationary object. Wise, a- wisely, I might add, you yes. had never you had never done that. Yes, and I never did it again um, because, as I say in that essay, a policeman came along and thought I was trying to commit suicide. We had a long conversation. He made me promise um, not to ever do it again. So I now, mean, were there cars coming by while you were lying yeah. down on yeah. either side? So you could have actually been killed. Yes. I mean, you know. When my friend Paul Bloom described this to me, you know, Paul? I, I know him as the author of that essay. Of the essay in which you mentioned your essay. Yeah. I said, that woman must be crazy. Yeah. I don't mean this offensively, but that's what I uh-huh. said about you. Because um, if there was a significant risk of you dying, it seems to me that the knowledge of what it was is like to lie down there is really not quite worth the cost. I see that. Um I, um, like, so I made myself very narrow, right? And it wasn't a super narrow road. And my thinking was cars don't tend to, like, cross over the double yellow lines when they're driving. No. This was before texting. I'll, get, I'll give you that much. It's not like doing it in the age of driver texting. So <laughs> I see, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, uh, there weren't many cars, too. I mean, there was, like, I can't remember how many cars passed me, maybe one or two. Um, and the policeman was in the car who saw me. Um, maybe he was the only one, actually. I, I, I can't remember uh, in terms of the cars. I wasn't scared, um, but it seemed to me that the probability of being hit by a car was very low. You might still think, yeah, but it's high enough to make that a crazy thing to do. Um, and that's, what I'm, that's what I'm thinking, yeah. I think that um, that makes a lot of sense to me, that point of view, right? And one of the things I sort of talk about in the piece is this, this difficulty of communicating with the police officer where I was like, I know I'm not going to be able to get you to understand what was attractive to me about this. Um, um, and how compelling. Uh, I, I would say cops are a p- particularly tough audience for that particular, for that message. Yes. Right. Um, so um, maybe one way to think about it um, to make it seem less crazy would be to put it in a context of Thinking about um, thinking about that as a kind of outlier decision among a lot a large field of decisions where I am more open and risk taking than other people. Like I'm sort of seeing more possibilities of what to do. Um, even just when I walk down the street, and if there's like a little ledge, like I'll tend to walk on the ledge because it's more fun. And I notice other people don't do that. And it's like I'm having a little bit more fun than the people who just don't think about walking up. Not a high ledge, just like. Okay, I was going to ask. Okay, no, no, no. Now, I, mean, I also like heights, so I do tend to climb up on things that are tall. Um, but, um, you know, I don't know, like two or three years ago, I started this like late night debate series um, kind of out of nothing. Uh, I just saw the possibility of doing this. And it's been really popular and it's something that it was easy to do, but just nobody saw the possibility. So it's like. I see, I think most people, it's not that they would say, all things considered, I shouldn't lie down in the middle of the road. It's that they would never occur to them to lie down in the middle of the road, right? Mm-hmm. That is, in a way, what's abnormal about me is that I saw that possibility. And so I guess what I want to say is that, like, there are advantages to being attuned to those possibilities and to finding them compelling, but there are also disadvantages. Yeah, those <laughs> and, have occurred to me. You should make, so maybe you should talk about the advantages. <laughs> yeah, well... Um, I mean, th- those were examples of the advantages. So okay. the fact that I can, the fact that I, that I walk on the ledges and other people just walk on the sidewalk, I, I just need like a foot off the ground or something. Like it's fun. Like mm-hmm. when I walk down the street, sometimes I skip, sometimes I dance. Right. Uh, I've noticed other people don't do that. So 
I get to have more fun than other people. Um, uh, that is because I'm seizing these possibilities that are there. That those ones are not dangerous, right? Um, but whether I see the alternative possibility or not isn't so dependent on whether or not it's dangerous. So it's not like I can turn that on and off in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that I would do that now. <laughs> like I'm a parent, I'm older. Um, you know, uh, it was a particular frame of mind um, that I wouldn't describe as especially rational, but I suppose that I do do other things. Um, uh, I continue to do things that people around me find a little bit puzzling, um, but maybe where the stakes are lower. Do you have just one quick example spring to mind? Maybe my office is an example. Here, I'll show you. This is what my office looks like. Okay. Mm-hmm. So Whoa. Like, like most people's Whoa. offices don't look like that, right? Have you ever have you ever tried sitting in that office while on psychedelic drugs? <laughs> no, I've never done any psychedelic. You don't need to. That's the great thing about that office. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so, and I see. I mean, you can't even see this. Trippy. Yeah. So, um, so the point is like that's a possibility that's open to everyone is to not have a boring office, but people just don't um, apprehend that possibility. Um, so yeah, there's another. Point. Right. I apprehend the possibility of having a clean, tidy office, but that <laughs> has never happened. That now that I guess leads us to aspiration, but before we get, we'll go there, tell me, is there a connection between your attraction to unruliness? We should add, you define unruliness is not exactly the same as rebellion because rebellion has a purpose. Unruliness is like aimless rebelliousness or something. It's like it's like for the sake of the rebellion as opposed to for the sake of some end state that the rebellion is designed to lead to, right? Right. It's less purposive, yes. And is this related to your being attracted to philosophy, your unruliness? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that um, – um, so here's a way that I put it recently on Twitter. Like I'm attracted to um, transgressive views too, like transgressive ideas, not just transgressive actions. Right. And that's a dangerous way to be because if you're attracted to a view on the basis of the fact that like other people disagree with it, you're pretty likely to be wrong a lot of the time because what most people think tends to be right. And Um, so one thing that philosophy does is like puts me in constant contact in constant argumentative contact with other people so that I can like test whether this transgressive idea is like a good one or is one of the garbage ones. Most of them, the vast majority of them are garbage. So, um, I'm someone who needs a lot of personal interaction in order to think. And that's really a big part of why I left classics. I was a grad student in classics. I got an MA. I took all these exams. But in classics, you're sort of expected to develop your ideas on your own. And I would develop pretty crazy ideas. Like I once handed in a paper on the Aeneid that was about how the entire Aeneid was a dream and it had a soundtrack you were supposed to listen to. This is in grad school, okay? What, um, the paper had a soundtrack and it was like supposed to be this. It, it was just crazy, right? So suppose like you're a little bit crazy. Um, you need people to rein you in. And philosophy gives me that. Okay. <laughs> So it's like a, a good intellectual uh, prison or, or safe house or something for you. Now that's a bad intellectual metaphor. workout. It's a good. It's a good gym. It's a good safe yeah. gym for you. Okay. So um, let's talk about. Now let's back into aspiration via acrasia. Okay. Because one one thing that occurred to me when I you know and that's a word that. Uh, 
I, I could not have defined it until I saw it in your in your work. You don't hear it much. I think is it a word in uh, Spencer's The Fairy Queen? Does it come up? You know, because I know a crazen, which is uh, the stuff, the chemical that that leads slime mold cells to like bond and form a kind of single multi-celled organism, was named after I think the word acrasia as used in Spencer's The Fairy Queen. It was this was. John Bonner, this uh, Princeton biologist, named it. But anyway, I digress. So acrasia, kind of acting against your better judgment while you're thinking this is wrong or unwise. Um, I had two thoughts. One, it it kind of is something I do. Um, on the other hand, it seems to me that usually, I, I guess my question is, how often do people do this? Don't people usually manage to convince themselves that, when they're doing something that they kind of know is wrong, at that moment, aren't they managing to come up with a justification for it so they don't think it's wrong? So, like, an example with me is, like, watching sports when I should be working, right? Like, and this is – I don't watch a lot of sports, but it it does seem to me like kind of a pure waste of time. So, like, you know, sometimes I'll even wake up at night and I'll have spent, like, an hour watching, like, the U.S. Open or something before, and I'll think – I'm not going to watch it at all today. I'm not going to watch it at all today. I'll vow to do that. And that vow will let me get back to sleep because I'll be at peace with myself. And then about 50% of the time, I will violate the vow the next day. But often it is with a justification floating around my mind. Like, okay, you put in a lot of work. You deserve to do this and so on. So first of all, is it is it a crazia if I'm justifying it at a conscious level, no matter how self-deceptive the justification Good. I would say um, philosophers often talk about hard cases versus easier cases, um, where the easier cases are easier to explain away philosophically. So that would be an easier case. Um, maybe just to take a step back. So, um, uh, so the word akrasia. Oh, can, it's akrasia. You can say it either way. <laughs> akrasia is how you say it in Greek. It comes from the word strength, kratos, and then a, alpha privative. So it's lack of strength. Okay. So we um, should say for, uh, well, for everyone, a, it's AK or sometimes AC, but then R-A-S-I-A, is that right? Exactly. Um, in Latin, it's called incontinentia, incontinence. So it's sometimes called that, but that means something else now in English. Yeah, right? yeah let's go with the cross. And then in, it's sometimes in English referred to as weakness of will. So just those, all those three mean the same thing. Okay. Acrasia, we'll call it that. Um, yeah, it's acting against your better judgment. So it's like, I know I should do this, but I do this instead. Now, there are two ways to take a case of acrasia and make it um, uh, and sort of um, soften it into an easier case. One way is to think at the last minute, I changed my mind. Um, so at the last minute, I convinced myself that actually that was the better thing to do. Um, the other way is to say, um, I didn't convince myself, um, but I, I was powerless I couldn't control myself. So in a sense, I didn't act intentionally. Hmm. Right? So you can take a case of acrasia and sort of soften it, make it easier, um, by turning it into a case of change of mind or turning it into a case of involuntary action. Um, but if you don't do it, either of those things, then you get a kind of paradox, which is like, well, if you thought this other thing was the better thing to do, why didn't you do that? Right. Now, strictly speaking, is that the only true acrasia? When you're actually thinking this is the wrong thing to do as you do it? It depends on who you ask. Okay. So some philosophers think that true one doesn't exist. It's impossible. Okay, they are, what did so- Socrates or Plato or right? They, they, they wrote about this, right? Yes. They, so Socrates one wrote. famously um, 
that's a view that's usually ascribed to him. And I also agree in ascribing it to him, though some people don't. Okay. Um, so, um, so, so Socrates had this view. Um, uh, I think my colleague, Robert Pippin has the view um, that um, there's no such thing as what I would call the hard case. Now, if you think there's no such thing as that case, you're going to call the other cases acrosia, right? So if you want to ask me, which is the true acrosia, it depends on whether you're talking to a skeptic or not. I'm not a skeptic. So I Socrates says there's no such thing as doing what? What, what is the hard acting case? Acting against your better judgment. Acting while against your better judgment. Voluntarily. You have to throw that in there, right? Um, okay. Right. So he thinks that it, if you do what looks like acting against your better judgment, it must have been the case either that you changed your mind at the last minute or that you weren't actually in control of your action. So like a drug addict, right, might be like, I shouldn't take this drug, but they take it anyway. That might not be a case of the hard case of acrosia because they their judgments were not controlling what they did in any sense. Okay. So if, the, if, you're, if your judgment isn't, that's funny. Well, he's kind of, okay. So anyway, um, the uh your view is what that so, um right so my view is that um acrosia and aspiration are actually related in that um in a case of acrosia you are looking at the world simultaneously from two different ethical points of view and the easiest cases to think of are ones where um the um we have some kind of like brute bodily appetite, like, like desire for sweets or something, right? Uh, like a desire to eat another cookie. And you say to yourself, no, I'm going to have a stomach ache later. If I eat another cookie, I shouldn't eat one, but they like look really good. So what I want to think about that is like, there was a time, you know, you have this point of view on the cookie where you're like, mm, yummy, that looks so good, right? There was a time in your life where that was the only point of view on it you had when you were like four or something, right? <laughs> so when you're four years old, you just want the cookie. And you don't think about, will I get a stomachache later? The ethical point of view of prudence, where you step back from yourself and you think about your life, and that, that, that just, you didn't have that at that age, right? So you had to learn to think about the world in that way. But when you learned that, you didn't totally unlearn the four-year-old's point of view. You're telling me. <laughs> That's still kind of with you. So I think what's happening in a case of acrosia is that um, you've, you sort of, pulled yourself aspirationally out of a certain kind of older, you know, um, more childish, more immature way of approaching the world where immediate pleasures are the only things of value, right? Mm -hmm. You've pulled yourself out of that, but not all the way. Right. You still have that with you. And so um, when you look at the action of watching sports or eating the cookie, you look at it from, you look at it both as like, "Mm, that would be so fun. Yum. Yeah. And well, no, I don't want to do that. I have this better option. And um, some of the, you know, there's a lot of different ways to manage that dialectic, right? Um, and one way to manage it is actually to sort of tell yourself a story that will satisfy your prudent self, mm-hmm. right? That's what we call rationalization, right? Where we, we, we sort of convince the prudent self that actually having the cookie or watching the sports thing, like, if I don't relax a little, I won't get any work done. So I right. should, right? Um, so that, and I would say in that sort of case, you're not weak-willed because you don't, you're not experiencing this kind of straight-up clash. Oh, really? Well, that's a relief because that's what I do. Then I'm not weak-willed. Good. It's, just, it's, it's maybe worse, though. Oh. Because rationalization isn't better, right? It's, um, it's a way to adjudicate the conflict between the two perspectives. 
um, that is like non-ideal or non-optimal. It, you do, you're doing it in some sense by self-deception, right? right. You, you can almost think of this younger you perspective as like that, that you knows that um, he's not on the best rational grounds, right? And so he kind of, he kind of has ways of co-opting the prudent you by giving kind of fake reasons for why um, the imprudent yeah. thing would be the better thing to do. Yeah. Um, so, Seems um, to me, it yeah. seems to me this should be called weakness of will, but go ahead. It depends on how you define I, will and what I your think mind is. I think it's fine to call it like to use an umbrella term or something like that. Mm-hmm. There's a reason. So the reason to be kind of a stickler about the hard case is that the hard case um, can look impossible if you make a certain set of philosophical assumptions. That an action is only intentional if the agent does it for a reason. That a reason is the agent's um, all things considered judgment about what the best thing to do is. Right? Mm-hmm. And so then if that person thinks, no, this other thing is the best thing to do, it just looks like it follows that the person can't intentionally. Right. Um, you can't be acting against your better judgment because your better judgment feels like your judgment at the time is that you should do it. Right. 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 And so. Um, the That's point- in the case of rationalization, I mean. Right. In the case of rationalization. Right. And so, so, so that just doesn't count as a case of acting against better judgments. And philosophers have just been particularly interested in um, the sort of paradoxicality of an actions being both intentional and against one's better judgment. And that does happen. I mean, sometimes I'm sitting there watching the sports and I think, okay, now I should go up and work and I don't get up off the couch. And then I feel this gnawing feeling of kind of guilt inside me. That's true across here, right? Right. I'll put it this way. That's the kind of case that keeps philosophers up at night. Mm-hmm. But I think they're in the same family. I mean, I think you're right that um, what motivates us to create false rationalizations is the same kind of conflict that shows up in a particularly strident form in what the philosophers call the hard case. Mm-hmm. So it should be clear to people that Acrasia is a great thwarter of uh aspirations but we should at the same time before we get into your your book on aspiration or as we get into it be clear that you're defining aspiration in particular ways it's not like anything you want whereas it is used that way sometimes right so you're i mean first of all you're interested in the acquisition of new aspirations how is it that one moment i have no desire to even play golf and and then some days later I want to be the greatest golfer in the world or the greatest piano player in the world or or maybe I just want to be you know morally upright in some particular way that never mattered to me before or whatever right yeah these are the cases that that from at the beginning puzzled you or puzzle you that that people can acquire whole new values that 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 guide them in certain direct the, the things they didn't value before they come to value. That's part of the process you're trying to. That's right. And um, maybe so it's it's the it's the process of acquiring new values. That's what aspiration is, right? Um, so and one way to think about it is just to think that there's all sorts of things that you value right now, all sorts of things that I value. That if I go back far enough, I don't value that thing, right? Mm-hmm. And so the question is like, how did I get from there to here? Right. And um, you know, one answer we could give is like, well, I was shaped by my society, by my parents, by my friends, by accidental stuff that happened to me, right? So you could think that the reason why you value um, 
um, you know, a certain kind of music or the kind of work that you do or whatever is um, um, sort of external factors that have shaped you. Um, but that didn't ring true to me in terms of explaining um, how I came to care about most of the things that I care about. That is, it felt to me like I had a hand in that, um, mm-hmm. that um, there was something I was doing so as to bring myself to come to care about those things. And so I wanted to come up with a theory of how that's possible. How is it possible to make yourself come to care about something? Mm-hmm. Um, cause the answer can't be, well, because you care about it. Cause you don't. Yeah. Right. right. Um, so the, the kind of paradox is, you know, you can, until you have a value, you don't value it, right? <laughs> until you value it, you don't value it. So how does one get from the place of not valuing it all to suddenly valuing it? When you describe it that way, it does seem paradoxical. Whereas if you describe the person as a, as passive being, you know, pushed and pulled by their environment, it doesn't seem so paradoxical, but you want to preserve some notion of agency, right? Some. I think aspiration is something that people do. Um, even though I also want to recognize that they tend, aspirants tend to need help. So they tend to have like mentors and, um, supportive environments of a variety of kinds, more so than they will need once they've arrived at their aspiration. Um, but nonetheless, I think just because you do something with help doesn't mean you don't do it. Um, so they are doing it. Um, one important way in which I kind of reframe the problem a little bit. So in, you know, in the philosophical literature, one way that people have thought about this problem is just as you describe, how do you go from zero, not caring about it at all, okay, to caring about it? And I think the way I think about it is how do you go from caring about it very little to caring about it a little more? That is, how do you increase your caring for something? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't take myself to have to answer the question, how do you move from zero? Because it seems to me that if you don't care about anything at all, like not even in the slightest bit, then there's sort of no motivation for you to work from to try to care about it more. But it does um, happen, right? Yes. And so I think that, that's where um, the environment then plays a large role. Okay. So I think that all of our aspirations have to get started, but we don't have to start them. <laughs> um, it's quite often that somebody took you to a particular performance or somebody, mm-hmm. um, you know, started arguing with you philosophically or and, like something happened. Um, but I think it's important to recognize, even if we give these kind of environmental jump starts, you know, their place in the story that, that that's not doing the whole work of transforming you into the person who's really like um, passionate and invested in that thing. Um, So like a friend of mine, she was not at all into food. And then she spent like a year abroad as a high school student in Osaka. And it was such a culinary Mecca that that was like, you know, this kind of jumpstart for her. And then over many years, she became a gourmand and great chef and all this stuff. And, uh, but like, we don't want to, we don't want to have like, you want to give that moment it's due without thinking somehow going to Osaka transformed her into the person that she became many years later. It jumped, it started the process. Okay. And so you're interested in the dynamics of the process itself. What sustains the transition and the progress? Yes. And maybe even more specifically, um, I'm interested in the ways in which um, theorizing that process requires us to break out of certain, um, let's say, dichotomies and ways of framing areas of philosophy that are already established. So it's sort of like philosophers are making a bunch of assumptions in a couple of different areas of philosophy in the theory of rationality, like what is it to make a rational decision, in the theory of moral psychology, which is like 
the, the thing about ethical points of view that we were talking about, that's sort of moral psychology. And then in the theory of moral responsibility, what is it to be responsible for who you are and to get credit for it? So philosophers make a bunch of assumptions in those areas, which if those assumptions were true, there could be no such process. So in a lot of ways, my book is not so much giving you a theory of aspiration as doing something like explaining why we need to break a lot of structures in philosophy so as to make room for the theory of aspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, that is this because of- current uh, views in philosophy don't leave a lot of room for agency and free will or what? what? No, it's because they conceive of agency in somewhat narrow terms. So like, here's an example. Suppose that you think of agency just in terms of decisions. Um, So what it is to be an agent is to make a decision, and maybe what it is to be an agent over time is to make a series of decisions. Then you're understanding agency in a way that is um, uh, reducible to what happens at kind of an instant, right? A a decision happens in in some kind of an instant or a short time. Um, And... um, And I don't think you can decide to aspire. That is, I think aspiration essentially is extended over time. It's a form of agency that is extended over time. And so if you don't recognize that it's possible to sort of be an agent in a way that's spread over time, then it's like you have this blind spot, right? Mm -hmm. It's a little bit like one analogy might be if you think of, um, if you think of, you know, a physical description of the world as um, one that is true at any instant, right? And then there's going to be another description of the world true at another instant. And the whole, um, all of our, suppose that all of our physics were like that. Okay. It kind of is now, but um, uh, uh, then it's like, you wouldn't have a theory of motion um, because what you would have is a theory of states, right? And you could, you could analyze motion as like a succession of states, but you might have thought, well, no, there's this, this is this thing called motion that essentially takes place over time. It doesn't take place at a series of instants. It's fluid. It's not just a series of discrete states. Exactly. Right. And so aspiration is a little bit like that. It's like a kind of ethical motion um, that a person engages in. Okay. And so if all you see are these punctuated decisions. It's like you don't have the right framework for seeing the, um, you know, another kind of agency. Okay, so before we elaborate on your account of how the the kind of fluid uh, the fluidity happens, I mean, let me give you what what uh, is a kind of counter argument you've probably heard, mm-hmm. uh, which involves less agency maybe in your model. So, thirteen year old kid never had an interest in golf, turns on the TV, sees this guy Tiger Woods, everybody's uh, showering adulation on him, the women love him, guys like hmm, golf that could be interesting. No, has a friend who plays golf, goes out, isn't bad, gets some positive reinforcement. The friend says, yeah, you're not, you know, you're not bad. You've got kind of a natural swing. They go out again, uh, you know, and, and, and you get more and more positive reinforcement. You start getting acclaim. And, 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 and golf has its, its internal positive reinforcement. It just feels good to hit the ball where you meant to hit it. Um, and so – I, I don't know. On one hand, you know, you could call that kind of fluid. On the other hand, there are discrete episodes of positive reinforcement, so you could look at it that way. But in any event, it's, it doesn't seem uh, to require much um, explanation. You know, and then eventually, you know, you, anyway, it's through a relatively seamless process that you get to be like Tiger Woods, absolutely obsessed with organizing your life around what will maximize your success 
at golf, right? You can imagine that happening through a series of steps. Um, and on the one hand, you're the, you know, and you can see it, it not being uh, really emphasizing agency in the sense that the basic mechanics, positive and negative reinforcement is something, you know, we think we, we see rats as uh, capable of, as amenable to, right? So um, what's wrong with, with that, that scenario where you say, what's, what's the mystery? What more do we need to say? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of that story that you told, I could just accept as being um, ways of describing some of the details of a case of aspiration. So I don't want to say um, the cases I'm talking about are different from that case. That's a perfectly fine case of aspiration. But what I want to say is, like, look at the person at the end. Look at Tiger Woods, right? And um, do we think he got where he is by a series of, like, incentives that people we would describe him as driven, right? <laughs> um, we would describe him as somebody who, at least at some, maybe not when he was four years old, but at some point really started to see that he could be great without quite seeing what it would be to be great and to respond to the world in the way a great person does, right? Such that maybe by the end of that trajectory, he's like, as you say, has organized his whole life in this systematic way around golf and has perfected this way of being Tiger Woods, right? Um, it's not like that happened by accident. That happened because he was trying to get there mm -hmm. from maybe five, ten years earlier when he had done some of it, but could tell that he wasn't doing it as well as he could be doing it. Yeah. So what is, I think, um, distinctive about this kind of diachronic agency is that when you're engaged in it, when you're doing it, you have the sense that you're doing something not as well as you could. Um, and not only that, but that you don't even quite um, sort of see the world in the way that you will when you do this thing better. Mm -hmm. So you're sort of reaching beyond your current grasp of like how to be good at what you're doing. You're mm -hmm. trying to be better even at being good at what you're doing, right? You're trying to be better at understanding what you're doing and what it is to be good at golf and what it is to see the world in the way that a golfer does. I can't speak very articulately about that because I don't play golf, but, um, but I think that you're sort of working your way into a point of view that, when you get to the final Tiger Woods has like fully, it's fully blown. Right. And I think you could get someone a few steps, a few early steps. You could get someone going without them participating in that and without them in some sense driving themselves. But mm -hmm. when you're looking at the, the, you know, someone like Tiger Woods, it's, um, it's a good case for me in the sense of um, it's clear that, he really needed to have a hand in his becoming Tiger Woods. I mean, in some ways, maybe he's a bad case for you because his father was so hands-on. I mean, his father, I think, kind of decided he's going to be the great, you know, from an early, I mean, Tiger Woods was like on TV when he was four years old swinging a golf club. But anyway, there are athletes who who, who have less hands-on encouragement and guidance early on, and then they follow the path we described. So so go ahead. The, the um. Yeah, and it doesn't, I mean, it sort of doesn't change the case. Like, as I say, I think that for everyone, there is some amount of environmental input, right? Mm -hmm. And it may be that for a lot of the sort of greatest and most talented people, and especially for certain kinds of talent, right? Like famously, you know, chess or something or certain kinds of sports, right? Um, maybe there needs to be a lot of a certain kind of input so that um, in terms of the, the hand that they have in it, maybe it starts a little bit later, maybe there's a little bit less of it, right? Um, and that's fine for me. M um, my thought is just that um, it doesn't seem right to describe such people as um, fully a product of the values of other people. It seems like at some point their own value system kicks into gear in a certain way. Okay, and, the, and, and this is at the same time, 
you're making a statement, you know, almost about metaphysics, right? You're saying there is such a thing as agency. Are you saying there is such a thing as, as free will? Yes, I'm even saying something a little stronger than that. I'm saying there's such a thing as self-creation. Um, so um, there are a lot of ways to talk about the self, okay? Mm-hmm. And I don't sort of get into that in my book. But what I do is I kind of make an assumption that I think is like a plausible assumption, which is that yourself is very closely tied to your values. So like in some, like when Martin Luther King says, don't judge a person by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, what he means by the content of their character is their values. What's really important to them? What drives them? What is their life organized around? So if you'll grant me that your values are in some sense who you are, what your self is, then to the extent that your values are the product of your agency, you are the product of your agency. You created yourself. Now, I don't think anyone completely creates themselves for the reason that I've already given about external Mm -hmm. factors. But I think that, um, and this is like, um, you know, I was saying that we make these assumptions in philosophy that would preclude the possibility of aspiration. So one of those assumptions is the impossibility of self-creation, which is almost like kind of a little bit of a doctrine in philosophy. Um, Nietzsche says that the idea of self-creation is a rape and perversion of logic. Um, he says that it is like trying to pull yourself by the hair out of the swamps of nothingness. Right? He's like, it's just absurd. How could you create yourself? Where's the you that's going to create you? Right? There must have been a you already. It almost looks like a logical contradiction even to talk about it, right? Um, but what I want to say in my book is like, no, it's not a logical contradiction. It's possible. It's actual. We've all done it. Um, and... Um, so in terms of the metaphys- metaphysical commitments, I'm not only committed to the usual forms of agency, right, where in some sense the usual forms of agency start off with an agent that already has values. If you think about, like, the agent of economics, the homo economicus, right, he's like a guy with some preferences and some values, and the question is how does he satisfy them? And his actions are going to be the things that he undertakes to satisfy them. Well, um, my question is how, how did he get there? How did he get those preferences, right? And I think there's agency there too. That is, there's not just agency once you have the preferences. There's agency that's the road to the preferences. That's the story I want to tell. And um, and so the um, um, the kind of agency that I'm talking about is like, in some sense, even more metaphysically committal than the usual kind where acting from your preferences. Um, yeah, I can talk more about the self creation thing, but that, that's the yeah. No, it's interesting. I mean. Hurricanes are an interesting thing to think about. <clears throat> Hurricanes are sometimes called self-organizing systems. Mm-hmm. I mean, they would be the, the the metaphor invoked by someone who disagrees with you, I think, because it does look like, um, you know, it start it becomes this thing that we talk about that you know looks like it wants to head here or you know is headed here and so on. And yet, I think people would say, all that said, we can dis- we can explain both its origins and its growth. In terms of just the, you know, its environment as, you know, the laws of of physics and chemistry operating on it via its local environment, right? Right. And you're saying that's a bad metaphor when it comes to to, uh, organic beings, at least our species. Right. Uh, or at least it's not, it doesn't work for all the cases. Um, right. There could be somebody who just ends up somewhere. Okay. So, um um, you know, we can imagine somebody who through a series of accidents and through maybe she didn't even realize it was happening. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, in a certain kind of life. Um, one um, 
one way that one philosopher has talked about this is drifting. Okay. She went drifting to it. And she wasn't headed there in any um, intentional sense or in any sense that is dependent on her attitudes, on her mental states, right? She just ended up there. That's like the hurricane case. And now the question is, do we want to have the philosophical resources to draw a distinction between that case and some other cases that we think we've encountered in our lives, perhaps in our own persons, right? And like that is, is it is it a possible self-understanding for you to think that has been my life? And I, I guess you mean I, was, that I just drifted and been shaped by my environment and nothing more. Yeah, and I, I wasn't mean, and some genes, but those aren't you know those are just algorithms, so so they don't yeah. they don't impart agency. It's another kind of environment, right? Yeah. Um, and I guess for me anyway, um, if I think about um like say becoming a philosopher or something, right? Um, you know, and what it was like for me as when I started as a grad student and I would attend talks and I would be so confused. Um, and I would say to myself, like, well, I have to ask a question, even no matter how confused I am. And, um, and it, you know, that self, if I think back on that self, right. She would find it. I mean, she would find it almost incredible to think, there's going to be a time where you're going to ask questions in talks and you're actually not going to be paying any attention at all to how smart other people think your question is. You're going to be listening for the answer. You know, um, I'm still trying to get there. Have you gotten there? <laughs> I usually, yes, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, um, and, but so, so it's sort of like, but I look back on her and I'm like, yeah, her, um, rule for herself, you have to ask a question. My rule for myself was, if you literally understood nothing from the talk, I did really have this rule that I always had to ask a question, then you have to ask the question. I understood nothing from your talk. Could you summarize it for me very simply in one sentence? (laughs) That was like a kind of threat for myself, right? By the way, very few academics would be able to do a good job of that, but I I, I (laughs) digress. Um, I never had to use it. It was like a threat. It was like, if you don't come up with a question to ask, you have to ask that one. That's going to be so embarrassing. So, and that motivated me to actually come up with some other question. So I never used it, but I probably should have. Um, but, um, I, I guess my thought is that like that, that thing, that decision to always ask a question that wasn't just like something that happened. And then like, it kind of, I ended up here, right? There's a sense in which I was working my way towards an understanding of what philosophical conversation is and, um, what philosophical questions are and how to communicate in philosophy and what the ideas were. And it's absurd to me to think that's just something that happened to me. It's like, I had to work so hard. Like I had to read all these books. I had to construct all these arguments. I had to, I had to constantly be asking myself, am I doing this right or not? Mm -hmm. That questioning, am I doing this right or not? How could I do it better? The fact that that thought was always accompanying what I was doing. If I interpret myself as the hurricane, that thought in a way becomes inefficacious. It doesn't do any explanatory work. But my intuition is that um, that kind of self-monitoring is doing a lot of the explanatory work of somebody trying to gauge whether she's moving forward or not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, maybe an intermediate scenario between the hurricane and yours would be <laughs> a kind of like, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, big on a kind of evolutionary psychology view of human nature, and it would be kind of like, well uh we're designed by natural selection to um to kind of adjust our way of being to the social status we've been accorded so as you move through the hierarchy and now you're not a lowly graduate student you're teaching 
uh, students and graduate students and so on. And, and you're just getting positive reinforcement. People are saying uh, good things about you. You know, your serotonin level rises or whatever. And you just become less concerned with what these people think about you. Unless you suddenly go to a super high-powered conference where there's all these academics that are legends, and then suddenly you're very self-conscious about your questions, and that's the way the brain, that's the way we're designed to be. It makes sense to be, you know, careful when there are people whose esteem we can't take for granted, and when there we're surrounded by people whose esteem we can take for granted, to spend our resources in ways other than being worried about whether or not they like us, right? So... That it, 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 that's not that doesn't accord with your model, right? Fully. Um, no, but only because there's something you've left out, which is that <laughs> you, um, your model. <laughs> yeah, well, um, um, but even in the story, I think there's something <clears throat> left out, which is that I think over time, it's not just a continuous response to positive reinforcement. It's that mm-hmm. one learns more and more, better and better, to distinguish. The which are the forms of positive reinforcement that matter, right? One learns to become more responsive to the signals and um, to um, pick out the forms of reinforcement that are going to reinforce you in the right sorts of ways. Mm-hmm. And like early in the day, you can, um, you have a very crude response, right? Um, and, you know, like you learn over time, you learn that like, for instance, when somebody makes a good objection, to the thing in philosophy, okay? When somebody makes a good objection, that means you've been really clear and you've made a point clearly enough that somebody could object to it. That's a kind of success, right? Mm-hmm. You might, it takes a little while to notice, to learn that that's a kind of success. And that's one of the things you're aspiring to do is to learn to see that as a success, right? And so you can't simply take reinforcement as like a datum because reinforcement is itself something that falls within aspiration. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you, so... The, the, you, this this self this this you has to kind of have evolved to recognize the the truly positive the valuable positive reinforcement yeah yeah i mean it's not totally unrelated to this aspiration of mine to uh care only about the opinions of people i truly respect that's especially important online because you get these opinions from all these people and if you could train yourself to only care about the opinions of people you who's you know who you believe deserve respect that would save you a lot of trouble but that's but but that's a that's kind of a tangent yeah i mean i think that there's a complication there right which is that when you care about the opinions of everyone and not only the people you respect, it's not always because you're trying to aspire and you're looking for feedback and how to aspire. We're just in general open and sensitive to other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it matters like what they think of us um, because that's part of what it is to live in a social world. Um, and so um, I think that, you know, the internet means we live in a much instantly much more social world in that we're sort of like bombarded with people like on Twitter or something like that. And it's very hard not to care at all, I think, what people think about you. And you wouldn't want to be the kind of person who didn't care, really. Um, no, but... You have a kind of balance. But I'd be happy being the kind of person I just described who who didn't... Who only cared about the opinion of a select group of people who had been very carefully chosen because you value their judgment. Um, but what if you're wrong to dismiss the judgment of the other people? I mean, wouldn't you want to be at least a little bit open to those other people? Because like, what if you, you know, um, what if you selected that group poorly? Like, I, I guess I think there's, I see a value in a certain kind of openness. There's something very unhumble about fixing the group of people and being like, 
I don't care what anyone else thinks of me. Right, right. but there's something like, kind of uh, paralyzing and excruciating about being at the other end of the yes. spectrum. And I, I guess what I mean is, like, there are people, like, on Twitter yes. who um, – I, I, they are such ideological adversaries. I have so little respect for the values they represent and the, and the political goals they represent that if I'm wrong about that, I should like commit suicide or something. It, it, it's so fundamental. I mean, I mean, I've just wasted my life if I'm wrong about that. And I mean, it'd be one thing if they made, I, I do think I'm open. When someone makes an actual intellectual objection to something you're saying, fine. I, I think I, I think I go through the routine of, of addressing that, no matter who does it. Right. But as you know, in the online world, uh, negative feedback rarely rises to that level, or often doesn't. Anyway, we don't. Yeah. Let me let me ask you. Yeah. Um, uh, so there's an interesting feature of your view. There's an interesting role played by this kind of future you, right? Like if you imagine. Mm-hmm that you have made this progress, you've become this great concert pianist, or you've become this like, uh, I don't know, this great meditator or something um, who's tremendously mindful or whatever, whatever your goal was, um, you attribute an interesting kind of significance to that future person before that person exists. And in fact, when it's not clear that they will ever exist, right? I mean, talk, talk about, talk about that. Yeah. So that's actually key to my um, solution to the self-creation problem, right? So um, there's a, here's the paradox, or at least one way to put a paradox about self-creation. Suppose that um, my earlier self is going to like create the values of my later self. Okay. And in that sense, create my later self. That earlier self, you might think, either needs to already have some commitment to those values and some understanding of why those are the right values to have or not. If they do, it looks like, well, the question we really need to answer is how did that earlier self come into being? Because it already has all the resources for, um, you know, being that person, right? Mm -hmm. And it's like, yeah, that person then follows, the later self follows from the earlier self in this kind of, um, almost like logical way as like a rational extrapolation, but that doesn't look like self-creation. It just looks like a rational extrapolation. It looks like we need to push the story back one step and then we'll just have to retell the story. Right. Okay. Here's another possibility. The, the, those values were not in the earlier self, right? The earlier self had no commitment to those values. Well, now it looks like, okay. So like you randomly decided to acquire some values, right? Um, almost like you flipped a coin. You're like, here are these values. And it looks like that's not really self-creation. That's some kind of um, like random, totally whimsical act, even worse than unruliness, (laughs) Um, you know, where um, we're not going to really count something as an action unless you had some grip on why you were doing what you were doing. So it looks like either way self-creation is impossible. That's a dilemma. And I think there's something really right about this dilemma. That is, the dilemma does get at some kind of like standards for what something would have to be in order to count as a case of self-creation. But I think the thing that the dilemma gets wrong is that it presupposes that the attitude of the earlier self to the later self has to be one like creating or shaping or making or fashioning, as opposed to something like looking up to, aspiring, um, trying to become, trying to live up to, 
those are really different words, right? They're really different kinds of attitudes. So I think that aspiration presupposes um, the possibility of having a conception of yourself that is a better version of the you that is now, right? Mm -hmm. So um, the way that philosophers have traditionally tried to understand a case of self-creation and which has made them fall into the first horn of that dilemma is like, well, it's kind of like making a promise. Like I make a promise now that I'll do something later. And similarly, like I make a value and then I later have that value. And if you have that model, um, then it looks like um, the earlier self is kind of the more robust agential self and the earlier self already has all the relevant commitments, right? And, um, but, you know, what I want to say is like, it's more like seeing a certain prospect as promising, right? Where you're like, oh, I'll get it when I'm there. I'll see the full thing when I'm there. I don't fully see it yet. And so if you weren't able to do this, if you weren't able to have, to stand in this kind of relation to yourself as um, something that can be in a better um, cognitive state and in a better um, desiderative state too um, than it currently is, then I think you couldn't aspire. Um, but of course, to be in that state, it doesn't follow that that actually will happen because you could just die or something. Right. So um, on the one hand, you're obviously not the person that you imagine in the future. Right. Uh, because then you wouldn't, uh, have to aspire, you'd already be this, uh, you know, uh, if not perfect, uh, much improved person. On the other hand, you understand enough about what it means to be them that you can use them as a kind of yardstick. You can imagine what, like, what they would think of you. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, go ahead. We're going to. Yeah. And I, I, I guess I think it's not, you can't do that perfectly. <laughs> if you could do it perfectly, you'd already be the person. But you have some sense of what it would be like, say you're trying to appreciate classical music. Okay. And say you do appreciate it somewhat, but there's this, you know, um, you're listening to this piece of music and you're distracted and you don't feel like listening anymore, but you can tell that the person who you're trying to become would be the person who could listen. Right. Mm -hmm. That, and you know, maybe you don't know exactly how they would listen, right? Like that person is going to have a mode of attention that you don't have. And so you can't fully visualize your, for yourself how that person would listen to this piece of music, what they would pay attention. But you can tell yourself they, they wouldn't walk out the room, right? Mm -hmm. And so you have a kind of, you can use them as a rough guide. Um, and um, it, using them as a rough guide is supposed to move you a little way along so that like just getting yourself to sit through it, you might then be a little better at listening to it. And so that the next time you're a little better at paying attention and you can tell, oh, that me, now I have a better conception of that me that future me. And you know, what she would be doing at this point is listening to the rhythm of the piece or something like mm -hmm. that. So part of what happens is that your sort of um, rough conception of that future you guides you and allows you to engage in activities that then produce a slightly better conception of that future you until the point where you just are that you and you have a perfect conception. Mm -hmm. Or are not as the case may be. Right. You may never get there. So, um, I mean, when you talk about this, um, I, I don't think you mean this to be like a teleological view in the sense that the the future you is actually the future is actually causing the past to move toward it. But I, I sense you almost mean something a little more than just "Hey, imagine this you you'd like to be, and imagine that you passing judgment and try to earn the respect of this future you that you imagine." Uh, the, right. I mean, you, you almost mean like a little more than that. 
or not? Yeah. So what I do in the book is distinguish between causal dependence and normative dependence. So your later self is fully causally dependent on your earlier self because you can't go backwards in time. (laughs) So as a causal matter, the causal story is just the ordinary same, you know, chronological causal story. Mm -hmm. But um, in terms of normative dependence, um, I mean, one way to think about it might be, you know, like, um, Sometimes there's a movie where if you miss the first five minutes of the movie, you're just not going to understand the movie. Like the first five minutes are kind of crucial to understanding everything that comes later. And then there's another kind of movie um, where it's only at the very end that anything makes sense. Sort of everything makes sense in the light of the end. The end kind of pins it all together like um, like, like Rosebud and Citizen Kane or something like that, right? So um, what I want to say is that aspiration is kind of like that um, second kind of movie. Um, and you could call that teleological, Right. But if you were to call it teleological, the right contrast term, like what would you call the other kind of movie it would be like archaeological. I, I mean, literally, that means the logos, the, the, the reason is in the beginning in the RK. Right. So um, um, and so there's a kind of increase of order. OK. Mm-hmm. Um, such that like the the organization is really present at the end. And it's in the light of that organization that's present at the end that we make sense of the whole process. So what. What that means for a case of self-creation or aspiration is that the person who makes the rules of the game is the person at the end. Um, So the person whose opinion about whether or not you're succeeding or failing matters is the person at the end. Now, that person doesn't exist when you're in the middle, right? But from the fact that they don't exist, it doesn't mean their opinion isn't the one that matters, right? It's just that, you know, in effect, you can't fully know whether you're doing things correctly or not because the person whose opinion matters for judging you doesn't exist yet. But it still could be true that that's the opinion that matters. It's sort of like, it's then that I'll be able to say to myself, it was a good decision to spend this summer doing intensive Greek or whatever. Um, so you're sort of, um, um, you're sort of putting off or deferring the kind of full-blown use of your capacity for judging yourself and the real full-blown use comes at the end and so that's the sense in which you're normatively dependent your your judgment wise dependent mm-hmm. on the person that you're going to become but that person is causally dependent on the work that you do so in this view agency is related to the sheer cognitive capacity to imagine the future yes um so um, that, that that doesn't suffice, <laughs> um, but that's certainly a necessary. But if you didn't have that capacity, you would Absolutely. say you don't have agency. Like if my dog never does that, and I have good reason to believe my dog never does that, then you would say my dog can't have agency. If my dog never imagines a future, better him. <laughs> yeah, but that's also true of non-aspirational agency of almost every kind. That is. Oh, um, oh so there is non-aspirational agency. Oh, I see. So yeah. So what's remember- the example of non-aspirational agency? Um, suppose I'm trying to figure out what to have for lunch and I'm like, um, okay. well, I could have a sandwich or I could have something, but I'm going to be but, having okay. It doesn't food. involve like a new value. You're going to organize anything significant around. Exactly. Um, the way to think about it is that sometimes we're reasoning from our preferences, from preferences we already have. And all we're trying to do is satisfy the preferences we already right. have. Right. That's normal agency. But even there, you need to imagine the future, right? Aspirational agency is reasoning toward preferences. Right? It's a rational activity that ends in the having of preferences. And mm-hmm. it's that activity that my claim is, um, you know, kind of did, doesn't have a place in the philosophical landscape unless we make a bunch of changes. Okay. So the, the role that this imaginary self plays psychologically is a little like the role of God in a religious person. 
Yes. I think that's right. I mean, it depends. So people, people understand God in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that for most people, like if you worship God, say, right, then um, you see God as a kind of standard that you're trying to live up to. Right. Um, and you think in some sense, God makes the rules. <laughs> um, um, that is, he and has a this, and this more evolved being whose judgment deserves deference. Right. I mean, in that case, you know, it's not as though it's not because he's temporally posterior in his evolution, right? Cause God didn't need to aspire or anything like that. Um, right. um, but it's just that he is a more of a normative authority than you are. And the basic idea of um, aspiration is simply the idea of operating with someone with a kind of um, mental avatar of someone else's a normative authority. So you're right that the case of um, a religious person who worships God, they would have a kind of mental avatar of God as a normative authority where they're not necessarily trying to become God. Um, in the ancient world, there was some of that um, idea, but in the modern world, we don't think, think that we think that's that's um, impious. Um, but they are nonetheless using that to um, assess what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Okay, and there are—I mean, this is only uh, distantly related—but there are conceptions of God in which um, I don't want to say God is aspirational, but I, but I think like uh, Teilhard de Chardin, this Catholic theologian, said God is more in the omega than in the alpha. In other words, God is in the process of becoming uh, as the as as uh, humankind progresses and advances. It, it that, that's bound up in the process of um, of God's own, in a sense, evolution. Yeah, so that makes sense to me. In this, well, one way to think about it would be like there's actually two. I don't have to discuss this in the book, but there's two basic um, ways of understanding how aspiration might work. They're both compatible with what they say in the book. And one of them is finite and one of them is infinite. So the finite aspiration would be, look, I aspire to become a mother, become a philosopher, appreciate classical music. Maybe I'm done, right? And now maybe for the rest of my life, I'm just doing those non-aspirational actions where I am satisfying the preferences I already have. I think Aristotle had a view a lot like that. Um, so that aspiration might show up like in your teens and twenties, most of all, or something like that. And there might be still a few that you're doing later, but that, um, but it's a finite process. Um, and then the other picture of aspiration would be more platonic. And it would be, no, your whole life is aspiration. You're, you're, you're aspiring to a kind of perfection, even if not God, but you're aspiring to be a kind of perfect version of the creature that you are. And it may not even be possible within a lifetime to do that. Plato thought it wasn't, right? So I think that the divine, um, if you bring in the divine in that way, then that opens up the possibility for this kind of infinite aspiration. Mm-hmm. Okay. So is there anything uh, really fundamentally failed to mention about, I mean, there's a lot in your book, but is there just a huge missing link in what we've? Uh... I don't think so. Okay. okay. Well, after that amount of reflection, I think we can uh, invest uh, some confidence in that, in that judgment. Um well, thank you for taking the time. So the book is uh, Aspiration, the Agency of Becoming, uh, published by Oxford University Press. Yeah, Are you it working just came on... out in paperback, too. Oh, it just came out in paperback. Yeah. So it's a bargain. Um, yeah, compared to what it was before, yeah. Compared to what it was before. Um, are you working on, on what, are you, what are you aspiring to do or be now? 
I am writing a book on Socrates and refutation and our current cantankerous intellectual culture that I hope Socrates will shed some light on. Ah, now, and you are, you're very much drawn to the classical, to the, to the ancient Greek philosophers, right? Yeah, I was a classics PhD student for a while, and I, uh, yeah, so about half of my research is in on Plato and Aristotle, and about the other half is like contemporary ethics. So this book was my contemporary ethics book, and my next one will be my ancient book. Okay. And Socrates, would you say he was rebellious or unruly? I don't think he was either. Um, I think that um, he... It's, it's wrong to describe him either of those ways, because instead of thinking that he opted out of a certain game, a certain set of rules, it's more like he made a new game. Um, hmm. So, um, and that maybe that's what every unruly person dreams of or something, but. Um, I but like that idea. It's sort of like, if you think of what you and I are doing right now, right? We're having conversation. There are rules. We're following so many rules that you're not noticing. Um, so like when you ask me questions, I don't get like all offended. How could you not think my book is true? Right. Um, I am like grateful to you for asking good questions about it. And uh, I'm trying to, I'm not trying to make speeches that will persuade you of the truth of my view um, through trickery, for example. Okay. I'm just trying to like say why it's true. So all those rules that are like, um, uh, they're so intuitive. We don't always follow them. We don't always see them followed in all forms of social media, but you wouldn't, they're like so cliched, you don't need to state them. But for Socrates and Socrates' world, they did not exist. And Socrates kind of made them up. And one thing you see in the Socratic dialogues is him teaching them to people, like literally like, no, look, I'm not trying to hurt you when I make an argument against you. What we're doing is we're looking for the truth. He has to actually explain that in those words. Mm-hmm. Um, he has to explain to people, no, you should tell me what you actually think. You shouldn't just parrot what you heard someone else say because it sounds fancy. I want to know what you think so that we can test it. So it's in a way people I think don't notice this about the Socratic dialogue is how striking it is that he has to be explicit about that. Um, and that people are constantly misunderstanding what he's doing because the game doesn't exist yet. So I think we're playing a game that Socrates made up and um, we might play it better if we understood better exactly how he got it started. Okay. I mean, so he did, he did break some rules, right? I mean, uh, oh, yeah. He was literally unruly, but he had a, it was in the name of a cause. I mean, I would have been inclined to think you would say rebellious because, because it was in the interest of doing something. He had a goal in mind. And apparently you think one of the goals was to create a whole new game. Um, Yeah. Actually, sorry. I said something. I'm going to take it back. I said he broke rules. That's, that is the point of view that almost everybody has on Socrates. It isn't the point of view that Socrates has on himself. Mm. So Socrates does this amazing thing. I call it the Socratizing move. Okay. Where what he does is you're like, Hey, Socrates, you're being really rude or Hey, Socrates, um, you're, um, you know, you're, you're getting in the way of my pursuit of wealth and fame. Um, or Hey, Socrates, you're breaking the laws of the state. Um, or Socrates, you're not doing politics. We need to, and he's like, no, 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 actually, this is the real politics. Mm. This is the real wealth. This is the real fame. Um, this is actually good behavior. They're like, Socrates, you seem to be being irreligious because you deny all the stories about the gods. And he's like, no, 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 this is the real religiosity. So what Socrates takes himself to do is to sort of reinterpret the rules so that they work with his game. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and he thinks he's actually playing the original game better. Um, and, um, uh, uh, 
there was a, a, a time when the student uh, came to me and said, um, oh, I'm thinking of getting this Aristotle phrase tattooed, a tattoo. And I said, well, you should try to understand it. That's the real tattoo. That's a perfect example of Socratizing. <laughs> so it's like taking the term and giving it a new meaning in that way. So I think that that's why I wouldn't call Socrates rebellious. Okay. Um, um, it's like he had um, an incredible creative power with respect to the current existing system and to sort of reinterpret it on, in terms that worked for him. Okay. And I guess he didn't persuade all of the relevant authorities that he wasn't actually breaking the rules. But he persuaded most of the people most of the time because the really striking thing about Socrates is how long he spent not being killed, right? <laughs> he was an old man by the time they killed him. He'd been doing this thing, this incredible, subversive um, new game that, you know, sort of transformed politics and transformed argument and conversation and supplanted all these different forms of authority for decades, right? And no one stopped him for the longest time. Um, so, um um, I think in a way we should remark on that too. It's like, yeah, eventually they killed him. Uh, well, um, like Tiger Woods, he had a good run. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so um, where can people find your stuff online? They can Google your unruliness essay. Are you on Twitter or Instagram or anything? I'm on Twitter, not on Instagram. What's your, what's oh. your Twitter handle? Uh, Agnes Callard, my name. Huh, imagine that. A-G-N-E-S-C-A-L-L. A-R-D, and uh, I'm actually at Robert Ryder, W-R-I-G-H-T-E-R. Are you in, on any other social media? No, I have a university webpage um, at the University of Chicago. If you just sort of Google me, you'll, you'll see it, and you can read a lot of my papers are up there if you want to read my papers. Including one on Acrosia and how, uh, I guess, how Socrates handled it, right, or ha- handled the concept? Yes. Yeah. Yes. And I have a column, a monthly column at the Point magazine. So my column that just came out a couple of days ago is on the devil's advocate and why the devil's advocate is good. It's called the devil's advocate's advocate. Okay. Plenty of resources to check out. Well, thanks so much, Agnes, for oh. taking the time. Congratulations on the last book and good luck with the next one. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Before you go, a quick message from the suits at Meaning of Life TV. Meaning of Life will always be free for you to watch and listen to, and we don't even go the NPR route of guilting you into donating during Pledge Week. But we do have a small request. If you enjoy Meaning of Life programming, rate and review us on iTunes. The iTunes algorithm weighs positive reviews heavily, so taking a few minutes to rate and review us will help more people find out about our shows. Also, of course, we encourage you to subscribe to our Twitter and Facebook feeds. Thank you.